This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. I'm excited to launch into tonight because we're jumping into territory that most of us don't know a lot about. I didn't know a lot about it for a long time. And it's that link. Like if you were to look at a chain, let's say this chain is holding up something heavy. Which link in the chain is most important? Well, every link. It doesn't matter which link is compromised. Any link that's broken compromises the whole chain. And what we're talking about tonight is that when you get to the end of the book of Acts, who was the link of the chain between Jesus' apostles who wrote, which we talked about last week, and us tonight? Most of us don't know their names. Most of us don't know the sacrifices that they made so that they could preserve the word of God under incredible persecution with great threat to their lives and the lives of their families so that you and I could know Jesus. And as we talk about how the New Testament came to be canonized, how the Bible came to be completed and put into our hands, this is a fascinating link of the chain to study. So I want to open up. Wow, this is so official looking. Glory to God. It's enormous. The Bible has two purposes. The first one is to, do you remember from last week? Yes, glorify God. And two, to help us know him. I'm going to ask you again this next week so that you know the Bible has two purposes. To glorify God and for us to know him. And knowing him is salvation. When we talk about a canon, a canon is the list of books which Orthodox Christianity recognizes as scripture. The very words of God. So how did the books that we have come to be recognized as Scripture? That's what we're looking at tonight. The process of canonization was slow, it was organic, and it was handled with the greatest of scrutiny over several hundred years. It was the disciples commissioned by Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit to write down his words and pass it on far and wide. This was their job. And the apostles followed through with their job. They wrote letters to the churches that they founded, including several biographies. And those who were trained by Jesus and the apostles' teachings were considered to have the same authority. But within 20 to 30 years, the apostles under persecution were all martyred. Who was going to pick up the ball? Who was the next link in the chain? And as they worked out what scriptures belonged in the Bible... They leaned on verses like these, Matthew seven twenty four through 25. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, this is Jesus speaking, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded, anchored, planted on the rock. And that is why they were so tenacious and passionate and fought for the words of Jesus was because they genuinely believed that if Jesus was God, what he taught were the words of God. So it had to be fought for, it had to be preserved, it had to be passed on to others. This was the promise that Jesus made, and it motivated the early church fathers. Last week we talked about how the biblical writers claimed that their writings were scripture on the authority that they were giving Jesus' teachings. They even attested to each other as giving Jesus' teachings. Now, if the teachings of Jesus had taken place in isolation secretively behind closed doors, then someone could accuse Christianity of just making up a religion. It's like they just dusted off some books one day and said, we'll start a religion with this. Or maybe maybe somewhere in the, the, the dark ages, the medieval era, maybe a whole bunch of guys got together and they wanted to control people, so they wrote the Bible so that they could use it for power for their own dubious intentions. But that's not what happened. Christianity took place publicly on the big scene. Jesus spoke in front of thousands of people. His apostles spoke in front of thousands of people. In fact, their commission was to go out and be as public as possible. What happened in Scripture didn't happen in isolation. Many people knew about it. Many people witnessed it. And many people wrote others to tell about it. They wrote down their own eyewitness testimonies. And these are some of the people that we're looking at tonight. We call those that link between the apostles of Jesus, those disciples of the apostles. So the apostles were told by Jesus, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So his apostles followed through. They went out and taught people. And we have the names of some of those people. And we have the writings of some of those people. And we know their stories and their biographies. So we get to meet some of them. They're called the sub-apostolic fathers. Sorry to be kind of wordy on you. But sub means under. They're under the apostles. And they were those church leaders whose lives overlap with the apostles. Most of them were pastors between A.D. 90 and A.D. 140. And they wrote during that time. And they wrote, sadly, on papyrus. Remember what we said about papyrus? It doesn't last very long. And so most of their works have been lost to history, but we still have some of them left. And they were considered very significant and treasured by the churches. Those that have survived are important because they give quotations and attest to what books of the Bible were the writings of the apostles. It was these guys that could say, I know for a fact that John wrote that. It was these guys that said, said, I was there whenever Paul wrote that letter to our church. These are the people that when they write and they reference books of the Bible, we can take it to the bank that these books belong in the canon. Because they're attesting to their early existence and that they were written by the apostles who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus. These guys are super important. And I'm going to go through them sort of quickly. What I've done is I've posted my notes, most of which you're not going to hear tonight, 
online. If you go to www.iloveelevate.com, click on the podcast tab, and then next to the podcast, you're going to see the last five weeks of sermon notes. I encourage you, download these, because I'm just going to skim through some of these names, but some of them have very fascinating stories that you can read about after tonight. But the first one I want to note is Clement. Clement was a disciple of Paul. He wrote between 95 and 100 AD. He knew Peter very well and was acquainted with John. He was martyred around 100 AD, so he died about the same time as John. Clement quotes and makes references to the books of Matthew, Luke, John, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Hebrews, 1 Timothy, Titus, James, and 1 and 2 Peter. Another one of these sub-apostolic fathers was Ignatius. Ignatius was a disciple of John. Actually, the next three are disciples of John, which I think is awesome. It also reminds us that John outlived everybody, so he had a lot more opportunities to disciple people. He was a disciple of John. He knew Matthew, and he probably knew Luke. On his long journey from Antioch to Rome, where he was going to be executed, he wrote seven letters. And one of those letters was to a friend of his in Smyrna named Polycarp. We'll get to him in a second. His letters, he quotes Matthew, John, 1 John, 1 Peter, and he cites nine of Paul's letters. Now Polycarp, who Ignatius was writing to, he was a disciple of John. All right, so just to signify this so you can remember it, I would like a volunteer to be John and a volunteer to be Polycarp. Yes, Gavin? Absolutely, Noah. Come on up. Stand right over here. I have some decoration for you. Who's going to be John? Doesn't matter. So, just so that you remember, John was the youngest of all the disciples. John doesn't have a beard, so you just get to... Oh, no. Here, this is your beard. You get to be Polycarp. And then you get this awesome, amazing wig. Oh yeah, you look like Laban LaGreca now. All right, so John, you can you're gonna need to stand on this side over here. Where's Matt Carnes to be jealous when we need him? So we have here we have John, a disciple of Jesus. He wrote the books Revelation and the Gospel of John. I don't remember what the order of this is, but we can just unfurl it. Let her fly. He was exiled to the, book of, to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. And John it died of old age. I'll let him wrestle with that. Polycarp, who we're about to look at right now. Polycarp, you can unfurl them. Polycarp was a disciple of that guy, John. He refuted... Here we go. I'm going to have to get into this. Polycarp. Super cool guy. Whoa. What just happened? So Polycarp, he was a disciple of John, along with Ignatius. He became the pastor of the church in Smyrna. He wrote a number of letters, most of them lost, but we still have his letter to the Philippians. So he wrote, Philippian, wrote a letter to the Philippians too, just like Paul. He wrote it around 110 AD, and he replied to their letters asking for advice on theology, which he responded to. He was important for the early church because Polycarp was able to refute false teachings. Whenever 
someone taught something that was a little eh, Polycarp could say, actually, because I was discipled by John, John never taught that. That does not align with John's teachings about Jesus. So he was able to shut down a lot of bad teachings right there at the beginning of church history. He died whenever he was brought to Rome, and they tried to force him to burn incense to the emperor. Whenever he refused, he was burned at the stake, and while on fire, stabbed with a spear. Man, dedication. These are the guys, this is a link in the chain of how we know Jesus. Because people like Polycarp refused to deny him. Because people like Polycarp made sure that the gospel that we have is undiluted with false teachings. I love what he, this is a a quote from his letter to the Philippians. And this this teaches teaches us something about what was going on back then. He says, he's talking to the church of Philippi. And he says, I have letters from you and from Ignatius. I will send yours on to Syria, as you requested. And I'm sending the letter of Ignatius to you with Others. Most scholars believe that those others are the books of Paul or, or other Bible, you know, Bible letters and a present one of my own. So what we're seeing in that quote is that these churches are passing off stuff left and right. All these letters are just circulating around to the different churches. Do you guys want to stay standing up here? Because I'm going to call you back up again in a minute when we get to the next link. You, don't, you guys just stand there. Do you want a chair? No? Man, that hair is beautiful. So luscious. Dude, does this not look like a beard from a Pantene Pro-V commercial? As if you've ever seen a beard in a Pro... <laughs> That's my kind of concert where you headbang your hair off. Another early church father. His name was Papias. And this guy was really fascinating. Sorry, I don't have time to go into him. Download those notes. Are they going to be a distraction for you guys? Because they can sit down for a minute. Y'all good? All right. Papias was a close friend of Polycarp's. In fact, he and Polycarp sat under John's teaching together. One tradition says that Papias and Polycarp were martyred together as lifelong friends, right to the end. Papias quotes John, references Matthew, cites Mark, And he actually describes that Mark was Peter's teachings and recollections. Super cool guy. Yeah, you're going to have to sit down. I can't even handle the humming behind me. Yeah, take it back. I'm going to call you back up again. Thanks. Some other significant writings that are going to come up in a minute. I just plant these in your brains. You don't have to remember much about them. But they are the Epistle of Barnabas which many people believe was written by the Barnabas in the book of Acts. The Didache, can anyone say Didache? This is a boiling down of the apostles' teachings on how to run church services. And the Shepherd of Hermas, which was an extended allegory, sort of like the Pilgrim's Progress, that circulated around a lot in the early church. These were really solid writings of the early church fathers of the sub-apostolic fathers. So do we have any witnesses from outside the Bible who attest to the existence of the apostles? And the answer is absolutely. By the early 100s, these kind of, these kind of men and their colleagues 
identify 85% of the New Testament as having been verified as Jesus' teachings. And because of, something else we need to recognize, is because of the apostles and how they traveled so far and wide, the books and the letters that they wrote circulated in very different places. In fact, the four Gospels were rarely ever seen together. They were circulated in very different parts of the world. In Israel, Matthew had really taken root and was circulating a lot. In Asia Minor, John. In Greece, Luke. And in Rome, Mark. Now, they, they overlap. They're like circles of influence that overlap each other. But for the most part, they're written specifically to different categories of people. There was no comprehensive list that encompassed a complete teachings of Jesus through his apostles. There was also other very good writings, like the ones I mentioned, the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the Epistle of Barnabas. And they're circulating around too. They didn't even have a big concern of formulating a list yet. They were just sort of collecting whatever they could that was about Jesus and then teaching it. But things were about to get really, really complicated. Second Timothy 4, 3-4, Paul foresaw this coming and he wrote this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The word heresy is any teaching or doctrine that is contrary to Orthodox Christianity. One of the most influential heresies was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which means knowledge, and it was out of the Roman Greece philosophies bleeding into Christian thought. And Gnosticism was way far out. They had some really strange ideas. Ultimately, they believed that the God who created everything, also known as the Demiurge, the God who created everything was evil. And so everything he created was evil. So all matter and flesh and everything that we see and touch is evil. But there was a higher deity, an unknown deity, above the Demiurge, that was good. And this higher entity sent a demigod of the spirit, the sun or whatever, to earth so that we could be saved from the evil material world. Now, Gnosticism was complicated. It had all sorts of like a hierarchy of gods. It had like strange eons of things. But the idea was you have Everything that's physical and evil and everything that was spirit that was good. Necessarily, the problem with this is what do you do with Jesus? And Gnosticism took a hard left turn, if it hadn't already, on the character of Jesus. Because it said, if all flesh is evil, then the Son of God could not be born human. Therefore, either Jesus was like this ghostly apparition that people thought was tangible, or... The Spirit possessed the man Jesus and abandoned him at the cross. So as soon as we introduce even small amounts of Gnosticism, this duality between an evil God and a good God, or this idea that what was created is evil, as soon as we introduce anything like this, Christianity begins to fall apart, and Gnosticism was a huge danger. It was already becoming a problem while John was still alive, which is why he, he included things in his Gospel of John, and the word became 
flesh. And in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, this was important for us to know that Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% man. Now, the most influential, the most popular teacher of Gnosticism, his name was Marcion. And I would like another volunteer to come up and be Marcion. And he, Sam, come on up. You're just the first hand that I saw. Come on up and put on this very cute tiny beard. No, come on up. You get to be Marcion. Put that bad boy on. This is what happens when you don't shampoo and condition your beard. And just because I wanted to give you a little flare of color. Marcion. All right, now, I want you to do me a favor. We're really going to make this sort of a little bit of crowd participation. Anytime you hear me say the word Marcion, I want you to shake your head disapprovingly. That guy, Marcion. No, no, like, I want you to understand what I mean. I want you to shake your head disapprovingly as if you got home from school and discovered that your mom cleaned your hermit crab cage with bleach and they all died a terrible asphyxiating death. I definitely just made that up. Love you, Mom. So, all right, so let's try this. Marcion. Disapprovingly. Okay, thank you for the three people that visualized your dead, suffering hermit crabs crawled out of their shelves in desperation and melted by the bleach fumes. Let's try again. Marcion. Much better, much better. All right, so... You. Marcion. This guy. All right, now, just so that I can be clear, because you need to know this is coming, Gnosticism, as its own theology, developed its own books and letters. Many of them. And what they would do is, because they wanted to get influence in the churches, these imposter letters would actually write down and forge the names of the apostles. The apostles are all dead. They're not around to say otherwise. So they started writing things like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter, the Apocalypse of Peter. John got an apocalypse. Why can't Peter have one? And then 50 more were even found. Most of these were found in Egypt. Do y'all remember from last week why? Why would they find him in Egypt? Anybody really paying attention? It's not that they were centered in Egypt. They were everywhere, but they lasted longer in Egypt because of the hot, dry climate. Whereas in Palestine and everywhere else, they had the humidity that eroded stuff. Hang on to that for two weeks from now when we do apologetics. Now, how each of these spurious writings were reverenced by each church, varied. Some churches bought in and taught them like scripture, and some churches just thought they were suspicious, and some churches straight up rejected them. And then comes Marcion. That guy. Again, it's almost like Paul foresaw this coming. 1 Timothy 6.3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accords with godliness, he understands nothing. Now this guy right here, he was clever. 
And he boiled Gnosticism down so that there wasn't all these eons and levels and stuff like that. He made it really clear and accessible, and he pandered to the Greek philosophy of the day so that widespread people bought in. What he did is he boiled it down to there are just two gods. There's the bad God that created everything, and then that good God that sent his son to save us from the bad God's world. And in fact, the bad God crucified Jesus. But before Jesus was killed by the bad God, Jesus passed on his secret teachings to his apostles. Ooh, Jesus had secret teachings? That perked up everybody's ears. That lined up with some of the the Greek philosophies, the secret teachings of Jesus. But you know what? The apostles failed. They didn't do a good job. The secret teachings got corrupt. So God had to recruit Paul. And what Marcion started doing is he started collecting all the, the apostles' letters, and then he took his metaphorical scissors and did something interesting. He had to get rid of anything that showed God, the creator God, as being good. And he had to get rid of anything that identified Jesus as creator. So immediately, Marcion cuts out the Old Testament. No more Old Testament. And then he cuts out Matthew and Mark because they talk about the Old Testament so much. Marcion. Then he has to cut out John because it says that through Jesus, everything was made. And he just keeps cutting and cutting and cutting. And until all he got down to was the book of Luke, but he cut out the first two chapters and the temptation of Jesus. And then he cuts out everything else but a handful of Paul's Gospels. And Marcion believed, and Marcion believed that he was God's interpreter of Paul's Gospels, of Paul's writings. Marcion. This guy. Now what Marcion had done was he created a canon for his own heresy. Now, Marcion was this, he, was a, he must have been a frustrating guy because Tertullian, who we'll meet in a minute, talked about Marcion and he calls him the mouse from Pontus who gnaws the Gospels to pieces. Also, Polycarp, who we talked about, he met him in Rome and he referred to Marcion as the firstborn of Satan. (laughs) That guy, Marcion. Marcion was expelled from the church in 144 AD. However, what he did was massively significant because when he created, when he took the apostles' writings and abusively created his own canon to fit his bad theology, it forced the early church fathers of that day, to rebound, to tighten up their belt, to begin to assess what is Orthodox Christianity, what is accurate theology, because we can't let this guy get away with this. And so in response to Marcion, it was time that the church fathers started paying very close attention, started to... um, boil down what they believed, how they believed it, what books of the Bible were the teachings of Jesus authentically from the apostles. 
started validating and verifying them so that the effort was every church could be pulling from the same teachings, pulling from the same canon, so that they could have the same accurate theology. And so God took heresy bad, and he took it and used it to propel his people into striving for clear, accurate understanding of who he was. And so he takes what is evil, and he creates something that's good. And the church fathers are going to spend the next two, three hundred years working out who Jesus is. What books do belong in the Bible? What do they teach us about how we live our lives? Marcion, this lousy mouse from Pontus who gnaws the Gospels to pieces, is actually used by God in a bigger scheme to propel the church forward. Thank you, Marcion. You can go sit down. Love the beard. It's beautiful. And so the next link in the chain are called the, church, the early church fathers. You have the apostles, the sub-apostolic fathers, like Polycarp. And now we have the church fathers, and we're going to meet a few of them. They were the generation that had to respond to the infection of heresy. You see, the apostles, it was like their job by God was to write down everything they could about Jesus' teaching and get it out there and plant churches. And then the sub-apostolic fathers, it was like their calling was to attest that these things were correct and to get it out there so, and plant churches. But then you have this third generation that meets heresy. Lots of it. I'm just mentioning one. And this is the generation that now has to formulate and make clear teaching out of everything that they have received and inherited. It is their job now to write commentaries, to write apologetics, to begin to correct things that are getting off bound, out of bounds. This is such a special generation. And so we see the number of writings explode. See that like in the sub-apostolic fathers, you have Clement writes two letters. You have was it Papias or Polycarp writes seven. Or it was Ignatius who writes seven. But then you get into, into this generation, and they are writing and writing and writing and writing because they're the ones that are going to make clear the teachings of Jesus and explain it. Titus 1, 7-9, they took this seriously. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The first one that we'll talk about is Justin Martyr. He lived between 100 AD and 167. Justin was a Greek philosopher. He spent portions of his life studying Stoicism and Platonism and Pythagoreanism. But none of them were fulfilling until an old man led him to Jesus. And he became a Christian apologist. I don't know if you know what apologist means. Apologist isn't like, I'm sorry. No, apologist is a defense of the faith. A Christian apologist is someone who debates, who understands Scripture so well that they can put to rest all contradictions of Scripture, all arguments that come against our theology. And he became one of the earliest, one of the most important apologists. In fact, he founded one of the first Christian schools in Rome. 
Another one, Irenaeus. And I need an Irenaeus. All right, John, Polycarp, come on up. I need to find a really distinguished mustache here. Who's going to be my Irenaeus? Absolutely, Levi, get up here. Y'all start over here. All right, John, you're here. Polycarp, you're here. Oh, man, it's so beautiful. Oh, no. Look at me, look at me. Yes. Irenaeus. For us tonight, he's going to represent the next link in our chain. John, disciple of Jesus. Polycarp, disciple of John. Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp. Irenaeus was born in Smyrna. Maybe you remember somebody else that was a pastor of Smyrna. Anybody? We'll keep going. He was a disciple of Polycarp. Oh, that guy. He attended the school of Justin Martyr. Isn't that cool? But whenever his pastor back home in Smyrna was martyred, he went home and took up the reins of being the pastor. He was one of the earliest heroes of fighting for clear church theology. It was Irenaeus that was one of the main guys that went against Marcion and put that heresy to rest. Very significantly, he quoted the New Testament approximately 1,000 times. And it was Irenaeus, who was one of our earliest writings, recognizing four Gospels which means that the four Gospels that were scattered are now being recognized by the church as a cohesive unit. And it's also significant because it means that all of those Gnostic Gospels are being put to rest. It was Irenaeus. He compares the four Gospels to the four winds of heaven or the four corners of the earth. He also recognizes Acts, all of Paul's letters, and Revelation, which is also significant because Revelation was kind of on the line for a little while. Thank you, Irenaeus. Another guy? You guys want to stick around with me? You want to leave that mustache on? Sweet. All right, y'all can go sit down for a minute. I'll call you back up in a few more minutes. Another guy who is incredibly important, one of the early church fathers that stood against heresy and definitely against Marcion was Tertullian. Can y'all say Tertullian? Tertullian. Tertullian wrote passionately against many heretics of his day. He attests, so Tertullian, living between 155 and 220, get this, 220-ish is when he died. Tertullian attests that the original manuscripts written by the apostles were still in existence in his day, which means they lasted a long time. You're going to hear arguments, and we'll bring this up again in two weeks when we do apologetics, but you're going to hear people say, oh yeah, well the Bible is copies of copies and copies and copies, and you know that telephone game. You start passing it down the telephone, it gets all messed up. We have to understand that it's not going to be long after this that we start getting codexes, codices, where this stuff really starts getting cemented. The, the, the apostles' original writings lasted a long time. We're able to read our scripture with confidence that we have what they wrote. And then we come to, how do we know we have the right books? Are you guys ready to finally deal with this? They discovered, back in the 1740s, by an archaeologist named, I love this name, oh man, I need to talk to Jackie about having another boy, because this is an awesome name. 
Ladavico Antonio Moratori. Ladavico Antonio Moratori. That would be so much fun. <laughs> You'd be so hard to reprimand. Stop it. Number six, get out of here. So he found what's called the Muratorian fragment named after him. This fragment is massively significant in the links in the chain to why we have the Bible today for two reasons. The first is that the Muratorian fragment gives us the earliest list that we've found so far of the New Testament books having come together and being recognized by the church fathers. It has 23 of our 27 books listed out as these are the books that we recognize as scripture. That is incredible. That's at 170 AD. So this stuff happened fast. So you have Marcion causing problems, what, 30 years before? And suddenly, despite being under persecution, despite church fathers dying left and right in terrible ways, they are working it out, and we see a glimpse that the canon is just beginning to come together. We'll see next week its finality. But here's a glimpse that 170 AD, a lot of this is starting to get worked out. The Muratorian canon also includes two books that we don't have in our Bible. They were the Wisdom of Solomon, which is just sort of strange, and the Apocalypse of Peter, which were both removed by the mid-300s. Secondly, is that the Muratorian fragment describes the three criteria that the early church fathers were using to discern which books were accurate scripture, accurate words of God, and which ones needed to be discarded. Now, there are beliefs that going around, many of them perpetrated by fiction, that a council of men got together and they laid out thousands of books and they pick and chose their very favorites. Irenaeus makes it very clear that as they're working through this process, they are trying prayerfully not to choose what books they like or give authority to certain books, but they're trying to recognize the authority that God already has on them. They're trying to, they're trying to pray that the Lord will make the voices of certain writings stand out against the voices of these imposters. And so they used three criteria. The first criteria was, was it written by an apostle before the end of the first century? Was it old? You know, remember who the apostles were? The apostles were eyewitnesses. An eyewitness is good. Many eyewitnesses, even better. So was it written by an eyewitness of Jesus Christ? You see, that's going to remove a lot of the Gnostic Gospels that didn't come around until the mid-100s that they started dealing with. Was it written by an apostle? One of the examples that they give of a book that they removed from authorship was The Shepherd of Hermas. And they actually say that it's a helpful book, Christians should read it, but it shouldn't be read aloud in church as scripture because we know who the author is, we know, and he is, quote-unquote, of our day. And so the, the Shepherd of Hermas, which spent a lot of time being read as scripture, was removed because of this first criteria. The exceptions 
to this rule were the book of Mark, the book of Luke, and the book of Hebrews. However, because Mark was Peter's teachings, it made it in. Because Luke was such a close traveling companion with Paul, it made it in. In Hebrews, Augustine made a really good argument that it was written by Paul, and so it slipped kind of through the filter. The second criteria that they used was theological orthodoxy, which is a really fancy way of saying, does it line up with what we were taught by the apostles? Is it consistent with the books that we already know are scripture? On these grounds, the gospel of Peter was rejected, and the gospel of John was finally accepted, because the gospel of John was kind of iffy for a little while. The Muratorian fragment actually lists other Gnostic writings of that day, and it says, quote, These should not be mixed with scripture, as honey should not be mixed with gall. The third criteria they used was, does this book in question have wide acceptance in the church? I was kind of hoping we had slides up. Sorry, Noah. Does it have wide acceptance in the church? Does a majority of the churches recognize this as scripture, as being taught by the apostles? And this, through this third filter, most of those spurious, spurious writings, those Gnostic writings, were eliminated because they only have a cluster of churches maybe following some of those. So what are we seeing happening through here? What we're seeing is we're seeing the Holy Spirit at work. John 14, 26, Jesus is talking when he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I've said to you. The Holy Spirit is making the voices of these books stand out against their competitors. For the next 200 years, before they finally seal the canon, the early church fathers are going to use these three standards. Was it written by an apostle? Does it line up with church orthodoxy? And was it widely accepted? They're going to use this to grapple. Remember, during this process, they're not giving authority to these books. They're recognizing the authority that was already on them. And by taking these three criteria as sufficient, every orthodox branch of Christianity today, Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, without dispute accepts the 27 books of the New Testament as the complete and authoritative record of God's divine self-revelation. So this was very important. So where do we see God at work in all this? This has been a lot of history. A lot of beards. A lot of head shaking. We see the Holy Spirit at work over and over and again because a lot of writings didn't make it. I can't wait to get to apologetics when we see how Scripture endured through crazy persecution. When we look back through this kind of history, some of the places that we see the Holy Spirit moving are, it was the Holy Spirit that reminded the apostles and illuminated Jesus' words so they could be taught across multiple generations. It was the Holy Spirit that preserved his word through many national persecutions across two millennia, even when the originals were destroyed so that we could read it with confidence in its accuracy. It was through the Holy Spirit that he defended his word against the subtle, cancerous attack of heresy. It was through the Holy Spirit that he empowered his word to stand out against competing books. And it had to be the Holy Spirit that gave a unity of the churches to agree as to what books were authoritative. You couldn't pull that off today. God was at work because they were seeking truth. 
They were fighting for truth because they genuinely believed that what Jesus said was absolute truth. This is what they died for. I want to give you just a glimpse of the story of Justin Martyr. I told you already that he was a a Roman philosopher who left his Roman philosophies unfulfilled, but found a satisfaction in Christianity. He became an apologist. He founded that school. But Justin was arrested for his faith, and he was told to denounce his faith by sacrificing to the gods. And he responded with something very interesting. He says this, and it's so simple. No one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. What's he saying? How can I sacrifice to gods that are not? When I've been illuminated by truth, no one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. He was nicknamed Justin Martyr because he gave his life. He was beheaded for what he called true philosophy. You see, through the the trailblazing of these men by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have God's word today. We have an accurate understanding of God's self-revelation through Jesus and his word. This is what they lived for. This is what they fought for. This is what they died for. Go study out some of those names that we mentioned tonight. Download the notes from iloveelevate.com. They're fascinating. Consider that phrase one more time. No one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. So I've got to ask you tonight. Do you know truth? Do you recognize falsities, half-truths, bent truths when you hear them? Do you know truth? Do you actually follow the truth that you believe? Paul says if, if we listen to his teachings and turn around and do something else, it's like someone who looks in the mirror and forgets what their face looks like. Do you follow truth? And third, do you stand for truth? Justin Martyr stood for truth. Do you, are you willing to lovingly be bold about the teachings of Jesus, about your faith, about what is true? Do you know truth? Do you recognize it? Do you apply it? Are you bold about it? Matthew seven twenty four through 25. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man or a wise woman who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. If you want to study this out a little bit further, I challenge you, ask yourself the question, is Gnosticism still subtly involved in churches today? And what does it look like? Go check it out. Recap. Has this been interesting to anybody else but me? Some of y'all? I love it. I think it's so fascinating. All right. Recap. The sub-apostolic fathers. Hey, come on back up. I want our volunteers. Come back up. All four of you guys. Come stand in line. Marcy and stand over here. We don't like you that much. You were a problem. But we do love Sam. And his Amish beard. 
<laughs> All right, recap. The sub-apostolic fathers, like Polycarp, were those discipled by the apostles and give testimony as to which writings were authentic. Heresies in the books supporting them crept into Christian theology. The most dangerous was Gnosticism, propelled into popularity by Marcion. Head shakes. Visualize the crabs, guys. Imagine how pitiful that would look. It was combating heresies like this which compelled the third generation Christians, like Irenaeus over there, to consolidate, to clarify, and to defend their beliefs. They needed to establish a criterion to recognize which books were scripture so Christians everywhere could study and teach the undiluted word of God. The three criteria were authorship, orthodoxy, and church acceptance. The Holy Spirit has been work every step of the way bringing us his word. And it is critical, critical, critical that Christians are vigilant to watch out for falsities in what we're taught. So I've got two challenges for you. The first one, If you are not reading your Bible right now, begin reading, start in the gospel. Get to know Jesus. That's what all of these links were for, was so that you could know Jesus. Begin reading, begin studying one of the gospels. You have four to pick from, they're all fun. The second challenge, I challenge you this week, get on YouTube, get on a podcast, turn on a worship song, listen to a sermon or common worship songs right now, and I want you to start evaluating Does this line up with Scripture? Is this true? Heavenly Father, may we be men and women of God who are men and women of truth, who know truth, who apply truth, and who lovingly, boldly stand for truth. Lord, I know that many of us in here are in very different places in our walk with you. There may be some in this room that are like just confused and bored out of their minds by this whole thing. There may be some in this room that, that are very new to this Christianity stuff. Maybe some are asking questions. Maybe some are like me and just find this all fun. But Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you will, through the power of your Holy Spirit, begin to illuminate hearts and minds that you will challenge people to dig into your word that you preserved for us all this time through links in the chain like these and through the power of your Holy Spirit. And as Elevate begins to saturate themselves in your word, begin to turn light bulbs on. Let people begin to see that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that knowing you is the greatest thing that we could ever have, that it's for this life and for eternity, that our eternity begins now, that where we're standing on earth right now is as close to hell as we will ever be because our heaven begins now. Our walking in relationship with this very Son of God begins today. Oh, Lord, that you would press on our hearts truth. Thank you, Lord, for your presence tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.